Thank you. If you have a Bible, please go to Luke chapter 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. Luke 15, verse 11. One more time, can we say thank you to our worship team for leading us faithfully week in and week out? Thank you, guys. So thankful for them. As you're turning to Luke 15, a few announcements. If you would, if you have a cell phone, would you please silence that for me? That'd be very helpful. Also, I hope you saw my video that we sent out uh, on Friday. Uh, next week, we're going to move over to uh, Wesley Hall for about six weeks while we do some upgrades in here. Uh, over a year ago, our finance team and trustees, I'm thankful they had the foresight to uh, do some upgrading to our lighting system in here. It also gives us an opportunity to uh, check things, electrical stuff and safety rigging. You don't want anything falling on you, do you? No, I don't think so. No, it's all safe. It just gives us an opportunity to do that and uh, also put in LED lighting, which is going to be helpful uh, in many, many ways. Not to mention, it gets really hot up here. I don't know if you know that or not, but uh, so thankful uh, for all that. So we'll be over in Wesley Hall for about six weeks also want to remind you that our college and career class is starting uh, up, I believe, next week. Is that correct, Kelly? Yes, next week. Um, and so if you are in that 18 to 24 range and you're looking for a home, you're looking for community, uh, please, please plug into that. You can get more information. You can see one of us. Kelly, you can go out to Connection Point. We would love to get you connected to that. Also, our Upward Sports, we have flag football and cheer coming up. Uh, and so if you are interested uh, in those activities, Craig does a wonderful job. Craig, AJ, and the whole team do a great job um, with our Upward Sports. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, you can get more information at Connection Point. We're also celebrating 130 years on August 16th. Uh, so come out to a big birthday party. Uh, we're going to celebrate what God has done over 130 years and look forward to what he's going to do in the years to come. I also want to say thank you so much for your giving week in and week out. For those of us where Fraser is our home and we are members here, this is an act of worship where we give back just a small portion of what the Lord has given to us. And so thank you for that. And you give the boxes that are in the back. Uh, as you go out, you can also text the number that you see on the screen. You can also give on our app. I know our app is under a little bit of construction right now, but that's okay. You can still give that way, um, but we're looking forward to all that being completed as well. This morning, uh, one of the things we do each week is we pray for another local church or ministry or mission. Um, this morning, we're going to pray for the Free Methodist Church in UK and Ireland. Uh, just returned last night, late last night, from General Conference uh, down in Florida. We were there for a week, and it was absolutely amazing to be there and to see everything that the Lord is doing through the Free Methodist Church around the globe. That's the first time in my life I've ever said General Conference was amazing. So uh, it is uh, really good. Some of you know what that means. And uh, anyway... But uh, it was so life-giving and just wonderful. This morning, we have the privilege of having John and Becky Townley, who are here with us. They are the national leaders for UK and Ireland. Guys, would y'all please stand just for a second? Let us recognize you. Yeah. We are so thankful for them and their leadership. Uh, they were the ones that connected us with Project Scotland, with, Louis, with Louise and Danny. And so uh, John's actually going to come up at the end of the service. Uh, and pray for us as well. He has that voice where it doesn't matter, doesn't matter what he says, he sounds like God, you know, because he's from Britain, you know. It's just how I, I picture God speaking, you know. 
So uh, I want to say thank you, too, to John Ed and Keith Walter for preaching for me the last two Wednesdays while I've been traveling. Uh, they did a fantastic job. Uh, I'll be uh, in the Wednesday night service this coming Wednesday in the East Sanctuary at 6 o'clock as we continue our study through Luke. Uh, and so let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Luke 15. Father, we thank you. We thank you. You are so good and gracious and kind to meet with us in this place. And Lord, as we come now and we open your word, we're asking for you to speak to us. Lord, we're praying for the church in UK and Ireland. We thank you for John and Becky. Pray your blessings over them and their leadership and over the churches that they oversee. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to pour out your spirit in a powerful, powerful ways through their ministry. And Lord, now we ask that you would speak to us. Your servants are listening. We need to hear from you this morning, so would you speak? We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name, and everybody said. This morning we come to uh, a parable in Luke 15 that has literally gripped the hearts of millions upon millions of people uh, throughout the centuries. I heard that it was said that both Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson said that this was the greatest short story ever told. Greatest short story ever told. Uh, we see that Jesus is teaching in Luke 15, uh, and he's teaching in parables. And he gives us the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, now the parable of the lost sons, plural, I would say. And in the parable of the lost sheep, we see that there are 100 sheep, and one is lost, and the shepherd goes after that one. That's 1%. God goes after the 1%. Then the parable of the lost coin, we see the lady has 10 coins and she loses one. That's 10%. And we see that God goes after the 10%. And then we come to this parable, the parable of the two sons, and both, I would say, are lost. And we see that God goes after the 100% as well. And part of what Jesus is communicating to us is that if there is a population where it's completely lost, God's going to go after that. If it's a population where 10% is lost, God's going to go after that. If it's a population where just 1% is lost, God is going to pursue all people. And we call this the parable, if you have a Bible, it probably says the parable of the prodigal son, singular. But if I could give this a title, I would call it the parable of the two self-righteous sons. And I think that's what we'll see. We pick it up in verse 11 when it says, and he, he being Jesus, said, tells a parable, there was a man who had two sons. Notice there's two. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. There's a whole lot of me going on right here off the bat, if you notice. And then Jesus said, and he, the father, divided his property between them. Notice that. One son, the younger son, comes to the father and says, Father, I want my share of the property that's coming to me, but the father divides the property between them. It's as if both of them receive their share of the property that was going to come to them. Now, some people say that the father here, what he does in giving the inheritance is performing the ketsia, which is uh, a legal uh, disowning of the son that he would give him his share of the property and then therefore cut him out of the family and send him on his way. Uh, the problem with that is that, well, first of all, this does not appear in the Mishnah, which were the oral laws that supported the scriptural laws, but they are, this, this idea of the Ketzia does appear in later texts, such as the Ruth Rabbah and the Jerusalem Talmud. Those are a little later than this. 
But there was a ceremony in which uh, that it was said that the father could disown, legally disown, one of his legal heirs. However, I don't think that's what's happening here. Because I think here Jesus is revealing a different kind of father. And so we see in the text, one of the sons asks for his property. The father gives to both of them what they are to receive. Then in verse 13, it says, not many days later, so there's some time that lapses between the son receiving his property and his inheritance, and then the next verse. Now, not many days later, though, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Notice that. It's reckless living. Now, notice the text does not say sinful living. I think that is implied. But there are some things in life, a lot of times we ask the question, you know, is something a sin or not? We want to know if we do this or don't do that, or are we going to be in trouble with God? But there's, yes, there's a category called sin, but there's also this broader category that the Bible calls reckless. I think a wise question for us to ask many times is not, if I do this, is it a sin or not? But a wise question to ask is, is this reckless? Or not. So, yes, not only is he sinning, but also there's this recklessness to his life. And the, the word there in Greek that is reckless, we translate reckless, speaks to this disillusionness that happens. And what he's doing is dissolving something. Because the word there means the official closing of a partnership or an assembly. We call it the benediction, right? At the end of the service, there's this benediction at the end, and we know that we are formally closed as an assembly, as a gathering. But the younger son is doing this, in a sense, in the way he goes about living his life. And notice that the younger son is dissolving the relationship that he has with his father, not in the receiving of the property, not in the receiving of the inheritance, but in his actions, what he does with it. And the text goes on, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, so he receives the inheritance, he goes off, he squanders it in reckless living, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, in which he found himself, and he began to be in need. So in other words, his reckless living meant that he had spent the inheritance and he was not prepared for this external factor, this famine that came and that he experienced. And spiritually speaking, if we think about it, you know, we have to be full on the inside if we're going to survive the assaults from the outside. And as the younger son has just been living his life recklessly, not just sinfully, but recklessly, in this moment, he finds himself in this place where he's not prepared for what happens. And he had no control over the famine. But it's something, an experience that he walked into, it's something that he experienced in his life. And in that moment, he's knocked off kilter. He's disoriented, if you will. Makes us, we should think, if every little thing or every large thing or every little inconvenience or every large inconvenience or every little problem or every large problem that we encounter knocks us off kilter, it may reveal the fact that we're not anchored in him. That something is going on and we're like a buoy without any kind of anchor just floating around out there. But those moments of disorientation are actually moments of revelation. 
those moments when we're going through life and all of a sudden something happens outside of us and it totally rocks our world, as we would say. And those moments where we feel so disoriented, we're not sure which way to go, we're not sure what is up or down, those are moments of revelation. Because what we see in the son's life here is that these moments of disorientation revealed to the son that he had untethered himself from the wisdom of the father. And he was all alone. And when we find ourselves in those moments where we're living all alone, we're doing life on our own, we find ourselves totally disoriented, that's when the need comes in. Because the need that he has is not just a physical need, it's something so much bigger than that. And for many of us, this may sound familiar. And I think it should sound familiar. Because in one way or another, this is all of our story. We all find ourselves at points in our life disoriented. We all find ourselves at points in our life that there are things that happen that, that, that are beyond our control and it absolutely rocks our world. And we find ourselves in need. And those are moments when we realize there's this light bulb that goes off and we realize, oh, I have, I'm not tethered to the Father. I'm not connected to the vine. And those are beautiful moments in and of their own right because it brings us back to that place where we realize our ultimate need for our Heavenly Father. Part of this story, though, that is true is it's also retelling the Genesis 3 story, isn't it? It's retelling the story of when humanity said to God, God, we want to do it our way. God, we want to live life on our terms. That's exactly what the prodigal son is doing. It's exactly what we experience in our life as well. So he spends all that he has in reckless living. He finds himself being in need. And then in verse 15, he comes up with a plan. And the plan is, it says, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. So now he is trying to tether himself to someone else. He's already separated himself from the father. He's in a foreign country, and now he's trying to connect here. So he hired himself out as one of the, uh, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed Pigs, And we all know that pigs are unclean in Israel, and so he has separated himself here. But notice that he separated himself, not just from the Father. He separated himself from the people under the Father's care. He separated himself from his very own community, which tells us that, he, yes, he's in a foreign country and he's in a foreign place, but he's not just in a foreign place physically, he's in a foreign place spiritually as well. And the truth is, being separated from God should be a foreign place for us as humans. It should be. You have to remember who you are. You have to remember who you were created to be. See, you were created for the garden. You were created to walk with God in the cool of the day. You were created for the garden, not to eat the garbage that the pigs eat. Verse 16, it says... As he's there, he's feeding pigs, and he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, again, notice that he comes up with a plan. He finds himself in this place. He's received his part of the inheritance. He goes to a foreign place. He squanders all of that. A famine comes. He finds himself in need, and then notice his first reaction here is to, I'll come up with a plan. And my plan is, I'm going to have a relational connection with someone in this country 
I'm going to tether myself to someone here, and I'm going to work my way out of this mess. Isn't that what we normally do? Whenever life happens to us, and life start, starts happening around us and within us, we just say, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get myself out of this. And so he sets off to do that. But the problem is, is when we try to work our way out of the pig mess that we've gotten ourselves into, we find ourselves begging at the feet of man. And not only do we beg at the feet of man, we long for the life, notice, that animals have. Isn't that interesting? You see, the problem with reckless living is that it always leads to our dehumanization. We see ourselves as less than who God created us to be. We lose sight of the fact that we are people created in the image of God. And when we live as such, we experience this inner flourishing within us instead of the frustration that is going on around us. In a word, we experience contentment. We experience peace. We experience this joy that surpasses all understanding, which means you have this crazy kind of peace and joy in God, regardless of what's happening around you. The opposite is to live with these animal longings and rages. This is not very popular today, by the way, because much of our culture wants to just live off its own feelings or its own sensuality. And if I feel it, it must be true. But here, we're seeing there's a different way to live. We don't have to constantly be guided by that to where we are actually see our, seeing ourselves as less as who we are as people created in the image of God and just going off raw feelings just like the animal world does. But verse 17 says... But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, who is himself, by the way? I mean, the last time this guy made a major decision in his life, he went to his father and said, I want my share. He made a very selfish decision. So a lot of times when the text says he came to himself, we say, oh, he repented. Not necessarily. Although he is starting a journey. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, hmm, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Now, they have something I want. But I perish here with hunger. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, notice again, the text says he came to himself, but it does not say he repented. If it says he repented, it would have said he repented. He came to himself, and what he says to himself is, I'm going to go back to my father because my father has more of that stuff he gave me to begin with, and I need more of that stuff that I just squandered. You see it? He says, maybe I can get some more of what he has. And so in this, this point in the story, in his going back to the father, he wants to use the father once again to get what he cannot provide for himself. And not only that, he says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to act religious. 
Father, I have sinned against you. One commentator said, this, the, what the prodigal son is saying is, I'll go to daddy and sound religious, and maybe he'll give me what I want. Isn't it amazing how in life, and sometimes life happens around us, and all of a sudden we, we, we get religion? Huh? All of a sudden life gets hard, and we turn into a prayer warrior. All of a sudden something happens that's beyond our circumstances, and boy, we, we are a zealot for the Lord, right? It's exactly what's happening here. Exactly. I'll go back to the Father. Maybe he'll let me off the hook. Maybe he'll just give me a little more. The problem is there is no change of heart here. No change of heart. Oh, it sounds good. And then, then he starts practicing his lies. Notice he says to himself in the text, he says, I will arise and go back to my Father. This is his speech to himself. Father, I have sinned against, how do I need to say this? I, I've messed things up. No, no, no. I've sinned against you. No, 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 no. No, no. I need to involve God. I've sinned against heaven and before you. Okay, I, I'm no longer worthy, or I shouldn't be, shouldn't say shouldn't. Okay, so I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Okay, send son. Send son. I got that one. I need a third S because I'm alliterating this. I've sinned, and I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I got it. Treat me as one of your hired servants. There's the third S. No, he's, he's even alliterating the thing so he can remember it in English. Because, <laughs> of course, he spoke English, right? <laughs> but he's rehearsing this as he's going by. Okay, I will go back to the Father. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Maybe, maybe, maybe he'll let me in. The problem here is that <laughs> Notice how it starts. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Have you heard that before? Exodus 10. It's the same words Pharaoh uses when the plagues are coming down on Egypt. In Exodus 10, 16, Pharaoh hurries off to see Moses and Aaron. And what does he say to them? I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Right here, the prodigal son is saying the exact same thing that Pharaoh said. Did Pharaoh's heart change? No. No. Empty words still at this point. Nice speech, a lot of good theology in it. But his motive is coming through. The prodigal is no more repentant at this point than Pharaoh was. There's no more change than Pharaoh was. It just sounds right. So he goes off, verse 20. He arose and he came to his father. He goes back. He's rehearsing his speech. But while he was still a long way off, he saw, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Notice that. Notice all of what the father's doing in this moment. He's going back to his father's house. He didn't even get to get there yet. He didn't even get to crawl back to the father. And then all of a sudden, the father sees him, runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him. He hadn't even been able to say a word yet. Now, this idea, we understand the father seeing him. We understand compassion. We understand embracing. We understand him kissing him. But this whole idea of running is very interesting. The father running is not just surprising as Jesus is telling this story. It's absolutely shocking because no patriarch in the first century would run unless it was an emergency. One person suggests that not only is this shocking, it's absolutely shameful in this culture. 
that he would not be a proper patriarch in doing this. People point out the fact that if the father is going to run to the son, then he would have to pull up his robes, thus exposing his legs, which would be absolutely shameful for him to do. One author writes that if the father actually did this in the first century, he would leave his honor behind, he would leave his position and his community standing all at once. He would lose all of that if he were to pull up his robes and run toward his son. But remember, Jesus is revealing to us a different kind of father. So the father runs to him with all this compassion welling up in him. He embraces him. He kisses him. Verse 21 says, And as soon as the father does this, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Then all of a sudden the father cuts him off. It's as if the father's saying, I know you got a speech rehearsed. He cuts him off, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And the text says, and they began to celebrate. It's this amazing picture of God in this moment. The son could not even finish his rehearsed speech because the father was meeting him. Even with all of his selfish motives, he was meeting him in that moment. And the story does not end with the son begging at the father's feet. The son, once again, is wanting to prove himself in some way, to get from the father what he cannot earn for himself. So I'll go back. I'll crawl back. I'll say all the right things. But the father meets him in that moment. You see, this is a story about a selfish son, yes. But this is a story about a selfish son who encountered an embrace from a loving father that he did not expect. And even in all of his selfishness, the father's love is the acting agent. That's why this story is about the grace of God, because the grace of God, see, you did not become a Christian because you did something. You did not become a Christian because you came to some conclusion on your own. You became a Christian, if you are one, because the father ran after you with all of heaven. That's the point that we see. You are a Christian because God, the Father, left the honor and glory of heaven in Jesus Christ, the Son. He left his exalted position in perfect unity with the Trinity. He left all of that to run after you. Beautiful. Ends with celebration. The son, even with selfish motives, embraced by this father, this love radically changing celebration takes place. And then verse 25, now the older son. The older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. He called to one of the servants and asked what all this meant. Verse 27, and he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But... He, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. The older brother is refusing the father's grace toward his younger brother. He's saying, how dare that one receive the grace of God? He's not worthy. How many times is our relationship hindered with God because we reject God's grace toward another person? But notice what the father does. The father does not leave the older brother outside. The text says that his father came out and entreated him. I love the word entreated. Entreat means to earnestly urge and implore. He is pleading with the older brother to come in and to celebrate, to be a part of this party that the father has thrown. 
Verse 29, but he answered the father. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your commands and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. There's, notice that the older brother's saying the exact same thing, just in a different way that the younger brother just said earlier in the parable. I, 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 me, me, me. But the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours, not just the portion I gave you, all of it is yours. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad because your brother... He reminds him, he is your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. And then the story ends. And the story ends with this question lingering in the air. And the question is, did the older son go in? Did the older brother see and accept the grace of God for his brother, but not only for his brother, for himself, because the father had chased after him as well. We're left wondering. The context of this passage is Luke 15, 1 through 3, where we see that Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees and scribes. He's telling it to people who read the Bible, people like you and people like me, if you, in fact, study the Bible. He's speaking to the religious and he's saying, don't be the older brother. Don't get mad at what I'm doing and the grace I extend to people, how I bring them in and save their life and celebrate with them. Don't get mad at their robes and their rings and the fatted calf. This should be a moment of celebration because I'm saving souls. If you notice what holds the older brother back, it's the same thing as the younger brother and it's his pride. Pride always keeps us from receiving the grace of God because pride simply says, God, I know better. But if you look at these two stories, they're really one story, but if you look at them together, the younger son said, I want life on my terms. But the older son said, I want the father to always agree with my terms. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is which one are we? Do we find our place in the point of the younger brother where we say, God, I want to live my life my way? And do we need to go back so that we can once again, or maybe for the first time, have the Father embrace us fully and completely and celebrate? Or are we the older brother? Are we the one that we just say, well, I've always been here and I've always been faithful and I've always gone to church, but we just spend our times pointing fingers at everybody else? That's the question. Those are the questions that should be before us, which one are we? The younger brother, wanting life on our terms, or the older religious brother, wanting the father to always agree to our terms? I don't know which one you are. I don't know where you are. I don't know which one you have a natural leaning toward. You may have this natural inclination and leaning because of your particular genetic makeup of your sin nature that you lean toward the younger. You just like to run away. Or maybe you just have that natural bent toward, I just, yeah, I, I can stay and I can get real religious and I know all the jargon, I know all the language and I love to point out everybody else's sin. I don't know. 
But what I do know is that for both, the invitation is extended, and for us, the invitation is extended, that the Father's arms are open wide, and he is chasing after each and every one of us. And he loves to embrace us and bring us in and celebrate with us. And so whichever one you may identify with, let's take that to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come in this moment and for all of us sitting in the room, for those of us watching online, on television, we know our own tendencies. Lord, and for some of us, the tendency is that we just flee, we run. We want life the way we want it. May we start a journey of coming back. And Father, for some of us, especially those of us who've been in the church a long time, Lord, we admit that our tendency is we say all the right things. But we're not so sure about your grace going to others. Sometimes we feel like we've earned your embrace. Lord, I pray that right now, whatever pride, however it manifests itself in our lives, that we would lay it at your feet. Truly lay it at your feet. That we would feel your embrace. That we would see it's not about us and all the messiness of our motives. It's about you sprinting to embrace us. It's about you running as hard as you can through the cosmos for us. Thank you. Thank you.